Welcome to the Hidden History Happy Hour podcast with Alex Dean and Brian Cunningham. Here we have a drink, have a laugh, and you just might learn something about our favorite stories from history. Please visit our website at hiddenhistoryhappyhour.com and subscribe on your favorite podcast app. And if you like the show, please rate us five stars and leave a review. Cheers. Welcome, listeners, to a special pop-up edition of the Hidden History Happy Hour podcast with Alex and Brian on the escalating crisis in Ukraine. We're recording this on February 17th at 4 p.m. Eastern Time, and we'll catch you up a little bit on what's happening right now. This is a serious topic, but here on the Hidden History Happy Hour, we try to not take ourselves too seriously. So vodka, that's what I'm drinking. And I want to make a note, this is Polish vodka. I wouldn't want to be caught dead today or any day, frankly, drinking Russian vodka, but this is Polish vodka. Also relevant is the USSR and Russia have always insisted that vodka must be a vital part of diplomatic negotiations uh, for decades. And no one knows this better than our special guest for today. Mike Hurley is today the president of Team 3i, advising numerous companies, including startups, a number of which are into very cool space tech. Mike was also a senior staff leader for the 9-11 Commission here in the US. And most importantly, he was a career Central Intelligence Agency clandestine services officer, or for those of you unaware of the terminology, a spy. Now, Mike served his career uh, unlike myself, at the very farthest end of the spear, I like to be, uh, you know, commanding my troops from back in the embassy. Um, and Mike will share with us his story, including how he volunteered to be one of the first CIA officers dropped into Afghanistan after 9-11. But Mike is also a lifelong USSR and Russia follower and of necessity, a keen observer of Vladimir Putin. So we couldn't have anyone better on today. Welcome, Mike. Brian, Alex, it's great to be talking with you. Thanks for coming, Mike. Great to have you with us. My pleasure. Thanks very much, Mike. Alex is about to tell all of you the amazing story of the most complete victory, which we may see as a jumping off point for a more serious discussion of two of what could turn out to be the most complete defeats in history. And perhaps we will be able to use this to tell us all something about the nature of learning from history itself. But first, Alex's story. Alex. Thanks, Brian. So I asked my followers on Twitter uh, that pub quiz question, what is the most complete military victory that's possible? And maybe there's no uh, right answer to that, but how's this? A battle you don't even have to fight uh, because uh, your opponents don't turn up when you win it hands down. Um, that's a good definition. This is the story of the Battle of Karen Sebe, uh, which is the closest I've been able to find um, the way to pronounce uh, this town. Austria at war with Turkey, 1788. The Austrian army is on the march around this town, Karensebe, which is now in, in present-day Romania. One fine September evening, the Austrian hussars cross the river, and finding no enemies there, they promptly set up camp and do what soldiers do. They have some drinks. In due course, some infantrymen follow the hussars over the river. They sought to join in with the digestifs, and they are rebuffed. Uh, and an argument begins between the cavalry and the infantry. And as Britney Spears would say, you know, one thing led to another. Um, disputes, my friends, between booze-fueled groups of men with guns are generally a bad idea. And this was no exception. Soon, bullets are flying between the camps. 
and some wag cries out, Turks, Turks, because of course that's the enemy that we're going to be facing at some point. And soon enough, everyone. So it wasn't Thanksgiving then. It now. was not as far as I know. It wasn't a Turkish. And actually, Turkey's not a pleasant. I don't know why you guys eat turkey at Thanksgiving anyway. You, have, <laughs> you do all this stuff to it, like brine and so forth. The reason you have to treat your turkey so much is that it doesn't taste good. Why just eat another meat? Anyway, so they, well, they, bald bald eagle is too precious here. Yeah, I, I gather it tastes like chicken. Anyway, so um, <laughs> everyone is running away very quickly from the wholly absent Turkish army, and the hussars sought to retreat back to camp. And their unannounced gallop was interpreted as a cavalry attack, and they were met with artillery fire from the uh, Austrian army, uh, of which they were a part. So, uh, and so very quickly, the whole Austrian army, some hundred thousand men at Karansebe, is in complete disarray. Things are not oh helped by the fact that it, the army was made up of an admirably heterodox group of people of different nationalities, each contingent of which had varying degrees of understanding of the language of the other people in their uh, in their army. So men were shouting words at, at one another that other contingents didn't understand, and they were firing at every shadow, that is to say, at their, own, at their own comrades. Cue full-blown retreat of 100,000 mm. men from an imaginary enemy. Uh, <laughs> Emperor Joseph II is ignobly dismounted and thrown into a ditch in the confusion. A couple of days later, the Ottomans arrive, the Turks turn up, and one can only imagine their perplexity at finding a shed load of dead Austrians on the battlefield. Yeah, good job, everyone. Pats <laughs> on the back. Well done, everybody. We've really pulled that off. Uh, the Turks, of course, take Karansebe as a result with great ease. Now, the losses at this, this inverted commas battle were massively overstated, perhaps because neutral observers found this situation so funny. Um, but the tr whatever the truth of it, it's definitely right that casualties amongst the Austrians ran into the hundreds. And the Ottoman casualties were zero obviously mm -hmm. because they weren't there so how's that for <laughs> how's that for a complete victory or maybe we should say that the austrians won as well as lost yes well this is a it's a compelling case for the most complete victory so many questions alex first of all how much exactly is a shed load and why did you choose that unit of measure <laughs> uh, <laughs> uh, in, in an environment in which there was imprecision about the number of dead the austrians wanted to play it down everyone else was playing the numbers up uh, and there was no real knowledge of how many people died. Uh, I went for shed load as a, uh, a pleasingly imprecise figure that no one could disagree with. Uh, but I think it just means a lot. And I think it certainly means in the hundreds, which is what uh, most historians could agree on. Sounds wise. And also, perhaps you were thinking that this might be a family book because we would say shitload in the United States or fuck ton. One of those two, but you probably uh, uh, there goes our that. clean rating on the app store. Okay, <laughs> <laughs> as always, editing. Okay. So, look, we're going to talk about dictatorship today and the nature of being able to control the information environment. So, Alex, I'm curious: is there any historical record of any fallout that Emperor Joseph II took for being knocked into the ditch, or was that just covered up at home, or how did that? How do we even know that as a as history? Uh, good question, and I think that the answer is, is that it was so widely known in the army that that's where they had to pull the emperor out of the ditch, that that couldn't be repressed. But of course, they were in the dark and firing shots at one another, and the point is that, it, that nobody knew how he wound up where his horse bucked or someone knocked him um, or, or whatever. Nobody was was 
appreciably to blame. So whilst the fact of him being in the ditch was uncontestable, I don't think they ever found anyone to pin the blame on. I also love the part of the story that media reports overstated the losses, probably out of boredom uh, with the true story. I, I suspect right. there's a fair amount of uh, cable TV that follows that maxim today. Right, right. Well, we, unfortunately, we do need to move on to more serious things, although not to say it wasn't very serious for the shed. Pretty serious. Dead Austrians. Dead, yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but Mike Hurley, any thoughts on the most complete victory of any other candidates for that as we speak? Well, I don't have any offhand. I think that's uh, that's a very compelling story, and 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 I agree that would be that would be. It, it's almost sort of, um, you know, uh, Sun Tzu, I guess, um, in its implications that um, you know, knowing your enemy and being able to defeat your enemy without kind of raising a fist at all is is pretty impressive. So uh, maybe right. as we go on, something will occur to me. But that's uh, that's quite a story. I hadn't heard it before. I bet you Sun Tzu also said something about knowing your own side. Because that's what that's what yes. kicked it all off. People were speaking different languages, didn't recognize each other's uniforms. Um, that's uh, that's part of it too, I think. You almost wonder, you know, how the the um, Austro-Hungarian Empire, you know, even existed with such uh, such divergences and disparities in its people, uh, um, wrangling that. And of course, we saw when Yugoslavia came apart, sort of, you know, remnants of that, um, you know, right. sort of uh, that that uh, I guess uh, centrifugal force that took place there so holding that together for so many centuries is actually pretty impressive that did that did did put me in mind of one other question alex though i remember in an earlier episode we talked about the many wars fought between napoleonic france uh and and your country yes. and if i remember right they were referred to as campaigns of x based on who the coalition was that was being no fought. almost the almost the reverse and it's kind of flattering uh, rightly in this example to the french they they were the wars of the blah coalition and in each time the coalition was fighting the french <laughs> So right, you had the right. war of the fifth coalition, the war of the sixth coalition, uh, and it's just whoever was taking on the French at the time. So, uh, do you, the, so is there anything to suggest then, Alex, that part of the reason why the French, God help me for having to say this, but resisted all the coalitions for so long is because the coalitions were built on the same sort of diversity that led to communication problems and order of battle issues and command and control. Is that a thing or am I just making that up? No, I think at the time, France was one of the, if you, it's fascinating, if you look at a map of France over time, it changes shape much more than people think of it as doing. But nevertheless, there was a coherent unitary state in um, you know, a dominant position in Europe far sooner than we saw the emergence, most notably and obviously of Germany as we, as we know it to be today, uh, but also Britain with its uh, international and global uh, trading and colonial interests was uh, was always of a mind to divide and conquer on the continent rather than mm -hmm. um, apart from certain notable exceptions when we ran parts of France notably more efficiently <laughs> than the current <laughs> occupants obviously um, you know, our, our interests on the continent were were greatly less than than those who who are from there and the French were were running a, a successful unitary state and under a series of leaders most especially Napoleon were one of the strongest military powers in Europe and so the continent came to be defined by powers against the French and their occasional allies. Yes, sir. Well, our discussion from now on is going to violate virtually every part of the name of our podcast. It's not history yet. It's about to be history, probably. It's not happy. It's not hidden because as we speak at 4.15 p.m. Eastern time on February 17th, Vladimir Putin's Russia 
has some 140,000 troops surrounding Ukraine. And this morning, Russian-backed separatist forces in eastern Ukraine shelled a kindergarten, no doubt hoping to provoke a reaction from the Ukrainian forces that could enable uh, an excuse for an invasion. The only thing that's consistent with our title is it is happy hour in the sense that we are enjoying some vodka. But the United States Secretary of State called this day, February 17, 2022, perhaps the most perilous moment for peace and security since the end of the Cold War. And President Biden said that Russia will attack Ukraine, quote, within the next several days, close quote. So Mike Hurley, you've been a CIA officer, you've been a policy person in the White House, you've been a reviewer of instant history as a senior staffer on the 9-11 Commission. Do you think this is hyperbole or you think it's a sober assessment of where we are at this moment in time? I go along with Secretary Blinken's assessment. You know, it was just a couple of days ago when we thought um, tensions might be easing because at least um, Putin, Vladimir Putin had put out that the Russians had pulled some troops away from the Ukrainian border. Um, I was asked that question um, in a broadcast uh, the other day. And I remember answer, my answer was that um, I didn't believe it, uh, that that had actually happened. And US and, uh, nor allied intelligence had confirmed that that, that had taken place. Um, and so not, now we learn, and I, Lincoln was talking about that this morning as well too, that, um, that in fact, the Russians had sent reinforcements, I think 7,000 more soldiers into, into, the, uh, into the area along the border. So being even more provocative. And, and the reason I dismissed it, um, uh, that, that Putin had pulled it away is because I, I sort of see him as a, as a pathological liar. And um, I think that you know, he'll sort of say anything. Um, I, I think with, with leaders like Putin, um, you know, the ends justify the means. So any, any sort of tactic, um, any sort of deception uh, is, is sort of fair game. That, that's how I see it. And it, it, it sort of raises the question, and I'd love to discuss it with both of you, uh, Alex and Brian, is just the nature of, of the Putin regime. Um, it's, you know, autocratic regime for sure. Uh, but that allows him a certain, you know, latitude, lots of latitude actually to do things. Sure. That <clears throat> Dictatorship is do. efficient. Yeah, uh, yeah, certainly. And and I, I was I, I read a really fascinating article by um, kind of a, a, a scholar on on Russia that that um, I read every time she writes an essay. It's Anne Applebaum who published a, mm -hmm. a long piece in the Atlantic about Putin. And I think she I think she has it it right that um, that essentially what what Putin really fears. I, I think a lot of what's put out, obviously in my view anyway, is propaganda. Um, about about you know the Ukrainians are discriminating against the Russians in Ukraine right. and and all those sorts of things. I think it's it's obviously nonsense um, in my view. And um, but but Applebaum Applebaum thinks that what's really going on here is that that Putin and this this is consistent with a theory I've long had about a dictators and autocrats is while they have a great deal of strength and and by that I mean. In, in Russia, for example, Putin controls the military, the police, the secret police, the media, um, the economy, really, all the big corporations, all the big, you know, sort of wealth producers there are oligarchs who, um, who, you know, they make their billions, he gets his rake off from it, making him Indeed. one of the richest people in the world. And um, so in that sense, he's strong. 
um, as I think it was Applebaum who pointed out, imagine in the United States, someone who controlled uh, the military, the FBI, the CIA, um, but also the courts, the New York Times, Fox News, everything, the, the media. You know, imagine that. And, and that's essentially what, what Putin controls in Russia. Um, but at the same time, as Ann Applebaum point, points out, uh, leaders like Putin uh, um, are, are, are weak in a certain sense because they're always looking over their shoulder and they have to be because somebody's coming after them. Um, you know, he's maintaining him, him, himself in, pow in power through, you know, sort of this, this stringent control and rigid control of, of the society. But somebody's always breathing down your neck. Um, and what right. he saw in East Germany um, when the Soviet uh, empire collapsed in the late 80s and then finally collapsed in 1991. He was a KGB agent in East Germany. And he saw and the- Leipzig, wasn't he? Yeah. And he saw the mass protests and manifestations on the street. And I think there's this fear of, of democracy, actually. Um, and of that's what he wants to keep out of the Ukraine. Um, it's not just, look, uh, Brian, you know, I've worked pretty closely with NATO over the years, both from a policy side and in, uh, at the White House, but also in the field. And my view is that NATO, with all its flaws, still is the greatest defense alliance in the history of the world. And it's a defense alliance. And Putin knows that. Um, it's not so much NATO rolling into the Ukraine that he fears. That's not going to happen anyway. I think it's the European Union going in there. And um, well, market... that's of course, of, of course, it was the European Union vote, Mike, the European Union vote that sparked the first Russian meddling in Ukraine in recent times back in 2013, 2014, when they were going to have a referendum to join the European Union. And, you know, my view is whether Putin actually invades Ukraine again, setting off a humanitarian global financial crisis, or he just ends up using his military might. And I'm afraid to say also the fact that in our country, Mike, um, we've had successive administrations that were far too weak with Putin, basically making him feel like he has a green light to go ahead. Either way, he's already scored a victory because he's surely intimidated the Ukrainians from trying to join NATO. NATO is not going to have them in any event. He's denied them to some degree their self-determination, and he's, he's, he's increased the subservience of his country, of Ukraine, to Moscow. Alex, what is kind of the view from from London on all this? And how do you feel like, how would you grade your government in dealing with Putin in the last, say, 10 years? Well, most immediately, I think our, our government has been very much on the front foot in um, seeking to dissuade Putin from further action. And I would um, differentiate that, separate it out from the position taken by some of our friends on the continent, most notably Germany, which, of course, has its own Everyone in Europe, of course, has different relations with Russia. Uh, it has different things that matter to them. The Germans are he much more heavily energy dependent on the Russians than famously energy dependent on the Russians than um, many of the rest of us. But um, Britain has been an outlier in adopting a position much closer to that taken by uh, the United States in um, urging Putin, and not just urging Putin, but assisting uh, Ukraine and, and related Eastern European NATO states to stand up against him. The tricky part, I think, is that um, if we are honest, the collective defense and under Article 5 of NATO is a double-edged sword. And when, when Putin seeks an undertaking 
that Ukraine will not join NATO, something that membership members of NATO find impossible, understandably, and in my view, rightly to undertake. You know, they'll never say that a country can't join. Realistically and pragmatically, there'll be many countries in NATO that never wanted Ukraine to join uh, NATO, precisely because of the situation we're discussing. Now, if if Ukraine had been part of NATO when Russia outrageously stole part of Ukraine, you know, Crimea was part of Ukraine yes. when Russia invaded and took it over. Um, if NATO membership had been extended to Ukraine at that point, it would have meant invoking Article 5, most likely, and uh, would have led to a hostile situation between the NATO powers and Russia, which so, few, Alex, few people would have wanted. Just quickly for our listeners, Article 5 is a, is a provision of the treaty that created NATO that, um, that requires NATO members to come to the defense of other members if they are attacked. And as, as Alex rightly says, I'm sure many of the members of NATO would not want to have to bear that burden for Ukraine. Also, Mike Hurley, if I'm not mistaken, in order to join NATO, there are certain benchmarks you have to hit, including a certain lack of corruption, which we don't think is present in Ukraine, yeah? Right. Uh, no corruption in Ukraine at all. Uh, yeah, there definitely are benchmarks for joining NATO as there are for um, joining in the European Union. Um, let me let me. The, the other one, Mike, of course, is territorial integrity. You can't mm-hmm. be going through a dispute over your territory, which plainly uh, on any of you, Ukraine and Russia are. Let me right. take you back um, maybe a few decades just to illustrate the point I'm making about Putin. I was stationed in Europe in, um, in the late 80s and the early 90s um, and working for CIA. And I remember vividly, um, vividly watching sort of uh, the, the, the collapse of, of the Berlin Wall and then you know, these, this cascading, um, you know, these countries, satellite countries of the Soviet Union kind of being liberated and uh, peacefully. Um, but I, I still remember a classic example for me is is Romania, and you remember that the leader in Romania was Nicolae Ceausescu, Ceausescu and his Ceausescu. wife, and they were brutal, terrible, terrible people. It was a gangster state. He had an mm-hmm. iron grip on it, um, and I know this is collapsing history or compressing it a bit, um, but it seemed like because because there were protests over several weeks in Timisoara and other parts of Romania, um, and this kind of building, you know, crescendo. Um, but on the other hand, it sort of seemed like it all happened really fast in the sense that one day Ceausescu, what was his nickname? The light of the Carpathians, I think, you know, one of these, <laughs> yeah. one which of is these, ironic in light of the Dracula movies, <laughs> <laughs> one of these monikers, right? Like, uh, kind of like the Shah of Iran had. Um, and, um, and so it almost seems certainly in retrospect that one day they're all, they're all powerful, the next day, these two uh, people in their, eight, in their 80s yeah. are, are, are on a, a, a hillside and soldiers execute them. I think you can still see this on, on, um, on YouTube. Mm-hmm. But, but to me, that sort of showed you know, how fast it can all happen when the tide of public opinion or, um, or you know, the public gets motivated in that way. And that's what I mean when I say that I think all these dictators um, if that's what Putin is, or autocrats, certainly, mm. they have that fear. It's deep, deep inside them, especially when they've ripped off so much money um, yeah. and they've created so many enemies. And that's what I think it's, he, he absolutely, he can't see, um, it's not just NATO, it's, it's, it's Ukraine, this neighboring state, 
so important in kind of Russia's history, um, right. you know, becoming more liberal, small L, right? Um, and with, with market capitalism and young people now, especially kind of out demonstrating and demanding freedoms and demanding better lives and looking to the West. He just can't see that because he no. knows that will cross the border into Russia and suddenly this iron yep. grass becomes weaker. That's my view. Can I, yeah. just, uh, I just want to respond to that because I think Please I, do. I agree. And I think I, I, I share your admiration for Applebaum's reporting on this stuff. And I, I listened to her on the Council of Foreign Relations uh, podcast, The President's Inbox. We don't just make good podcasts here, we recommend them to you. And I thought, that, <laughs> yes. I thought that was excellent. But the best analysis I've seen is from Stephen Lee Myers, who, uh, the, the, who is or was uh, the New York Times Moscow guy. And he wrote a biography of Putin. Mm -hmm. called the news are and i think that that very much informed my understanding of putin's position on this stuff not least it's worth remembering you you said i want to take it back a few decades and it might feel like collapsing history but putin joined the kgb in 1975 mm -hmm. right that's where everything that you think about in the latter days of the cold war from before reagan Putin was materially invested in. And one mm -hmm. of the things that, that Stephen Lee Myers says in his book, which really stayed with me, is that um, Putin regarded the collapse of the Soviet Union as the greatest tragedy of the 20th yes. century. Yeah, and that's so. Yeah, so yeah, think about that for a second. Not the Holocaust, not yeah. the 30 yeah. million, 50 million people that died in the Soviet Union in his own country, but the loss of the Cold War. Also, right. let's not leave out of his biography, gentlemen, that he was the Zampolit, the political officer on the hunt for Red October. Oh, no, wait, wait, <laughs> sorry, that's a, that's a movie, yeah. but check it out, everybody. But he was so, called Putin. That's officer was. Yes, Putin. it's it's crazy. So, Mike, um, speaking of your involvement in past history, Mike, at a recent press conference, Putin cited the quote "war against Yugoslavia," which was unleashed coincidentally by NATO. Close quote as precedent for the acceptability of an offensive war in Europe in the 20th century, 21st century. Now you were there. So what's your take on that claim? Yeah, well, I, I think that's nonsense. And again, it's, it's his, you know, his propaganda, it seems like. Um, I'm reminded of, I'm reminded of, um, there's a Latin expression. Let me see if I can remember it. Quad licet jovi, non licet bovi. What God can do, a cow can't do. And in, 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 this, in, in this sense, um, the West going into Kosovo, I mean, remember what was happening. We, we were seeing in, in Kosovo in, in, the, the late, uh, in the late 90s, um, you know, people, these ethnic Albanians in Kosovo being put into boxcars and forcibly pushed into Albania and Macedonia by the tens of thousands. It's the first time we'd seen that since the Second World War. Um, and this was happening on NATO's doorstep. Um, so the justification for going into Kosovo. Um, ethnic cleansing. Ethnic cleansing, certainly. But, you know, with UN resolutions and sort of every sane country, you know, realizing that this was a massive problem, it was happening on NATO's doorstep and for purely moralistic re reasons. So, so, and I'm also reminded when I think of that Latin expression, so in that sense, you know, what, what, a, what an alter, I guess the way I, I I apply it to this situation is a, an altruistic sort of you know, reason for doing something beats, you know, a self-aggrandizing reason um, and, and trivial and selfish reason for doing something. And I think that's the distinction with what, what Putin is making. I'm also reminded during the Kosovo um, 
when when uh, NATO, led by the U.S. and and the U.K. and 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 sort of the other key members of NATO, uh, went into Kosovo. Uh, Putin, um, uh, well, I guess it was Yeltsin at the time, but um, the Russian government was trying to interfere with that because they were standing up for, you know, it was historically known as Russia's little little Serbian brother. Um, right. And and so that was their motivation. But I remember that um, Václav Havel, who was then, I think, the, um, uh, yeah, he was the president of the Czech Republic, you know, this, this, mm -hmm. this great Nobel sort Prize of winner, Nobel yeah. Prize winner and Without kind of moral, Nobel. you know, this voice of, of morality. Um, I remember he gave a he gave a speech in the Canadian Parliament in Ottawa, and he talked about NATO um, going in there, and he described it as one of the most altruistic, you know, actions um, in history. And 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 for the reasons that we weren't, no country was going in there for oil or for, you know, getting minerals or or riches. Um, it, it was purely to stop the Prevent ethnic genocide and genocide yeah. and bring order in. So. Um, I think it's It's an abomination for for Putin to compare the two. I, I I'm not buying it for a second. That's a I long agree. answer to your I, question. I no, no, no. I threw you a little softball there yeah. because it, it's it, first of all, your experience is extremely valuable, but also, I think it's worth thinking about the role of disinformation and propaganda and provocation and dirty tricks in all of this. You know, the Russians and before them, the Soviet Union. And before them, the Nazis have a long history of creating false narratives, false films, provocations to justify their invasion. And the, the, the Soviets uh, didn't even shy away from executing the entire government of a country and then installing their puppets to invite them in to restore the peace. So, so Mike, based on Putin's playbook and uh, Soviet Union playbook beforehand, how, how do you if you had to make a bet, which I know you don't like to do, how would you see this playing out over the next couple of weeks? I think that, uh, well, first of all, will we see, you know, Russian Russian planes, you know, bombing, strafing Kiev? Um, I sort of doubt that, um, you know, tanks rolling in all the way to Kiev and sort of taking over these key points. I don't have a crystal ball. I don't know whether that will happen or not. I think, though, that what the, the one thing we can count on is Putin will continue to try to create chaos. That's part of this. Mm -hmm. He wants to fragment mm -hmm. NATO. He wants to, you know, drive wedges in the in the in the Western alliance. Um, that's a big goal of his. So he'll continue to do that. So they'll continue with the cyber attacks. They're very very good at it. Um, and I think they will also. Um, I, I think I, one thing I'd watch out for is what I call sort of slice by slice, you know, salami yep. style just mm -hmm. slicing off little bits here and there and just pushing it and pushing it and pushing it, um, thinking mm -hmm. that each step will not, you know, elicit a massive response uh, from the United States and the allies. Um, and then before you know it, he sort of grabbed more and more territory. Uh, I think that may be how it plays out. That's what I would bet on. Um, but on the other hand, he's unpredictable, so who knows? And Alex, I know we've seen this movie before, and it's always perilous to draw two precise lessons from history, but I can't help but think about, as Mike talks about taking slices off, you know, Adolf Hitler taking the Sudetenland and then the agreement with Austria, 
I yes. put that in air quotes, the agreement. And the next thing you know, you got a real territory grab. Yes. And on the one hand, of course, it was a terrible betrayal of the um, well-constructed defensive um, arrangements of the then Czechoslovakian uh, people. Um, on the other hand, there are those who defend the policy of appeasement looking back to that time on the basis that it gave the Western powers most, especially my own country, more time to prepare for the fight against Hitler. And the difficulty with the comparison is that if we did buy time, I have no confidence that we would be doing more to prepare ourselves. So the trouble, the, the exactly. comparison breaks down at the point when you think about, well, if appeasement were to happen, then what? Right. Are we going to be any better off militarily in five years when arguably, you know, Putin has taken most of Ukraine and the Baltic states, although I guess the Baltic states are members no, of NATO the, now. So article five would kick yeah. in. The Baltic states are not on the table for now. Uh, uh, and I don't mean to, I, just, I don't mean to sound flippant when I say not on the table. I mean, I don't, there's no prospect. I don't think in the immediate term uh, of that. And of course, many NATO countries, including my own have committed troops to Estonia and Latvia and Lithuania to, yes. to make that point. But um, what's plainly, in play to some degree, and Putin is having success with false flag operations and, mm -hmm. and Russia and separatists who sympathize with or aligned with Russia, is peeling off parts of Ukraine. And if you take a slow approach to history and you, you believe that you will get there over time, it's hard to deny that he's having success in this. It, it's it's repulsive and it's something we should stand up to, but we can't deny that he's having on his standards the expand the ever expanding area of russian influence in that part of the world he is plainly being successful well, and the other thing of course he's looking at a country that was janus faced ukraine on the one hand looked towards russia where so much of its history sits on the other hand was was a, looking towards the european union much of the maidan movement was about close being closer to the eu and and, right. and to western europe and he has made his claim he's staked his claim to bring Ukraine, or at least a good chunk of it, back into the Russian sphere of influence. Well, and there are those, and I, I don't agree with this. I'd be curious to what you gentlemen think. There are those commentators in the U.S. that are saying he's already won. He could, he could withdraw right now, and he can say, uh, Ukraine's not joining NATO anytime soon, number one. Number two, I got President Xi to stand with me in all but and a formal alliance. And now the United States are, and, and, and the Britain and our allies are the ones that are isolated and dictatorship. And he wouldn't call it that, but authoritarian rule is on the rise. What do you think about, about that theory, Mike? Well, yeah, I think that, I think that uh, leaders such as Putin, if when they're willing to go to the, to the, the lengths that, that, that they go to, they can create a lot of damage. And, um, you know, Alex, I'm thinking of the you know the poisoning of the of the couple in in um, in the UK uh, on the park the, bench. Yeah, yeah. He'll, par he'll poison anybody. Um, and look, I, we, we could have an entire conversation about the problems that the West has internally and all of that. But I mean, one thing is, we in the West we're committed to to a kind of you know rules based global order. Is it perfect? No. Do we fall short of it? Do countries take advantage of things at times? Of course, but there are these sort of principles, and and Putin's operating completely outside the rules, uh, right? And that is that and is getting dangerous. away with it so that far. Is, that's right, well, and it's dangerous, but it, it's very hard to deal with somebody like that. So let, let me pick up on. So I think that's right, and I think that the point you make about um, Sergei Skripal and his daughter who were poisoned in 
Salisbury here in the UK, is that they weren't just poisoned by Russians. They were poisoned with Novichok, a nerve yeah. agent. Um, you know, uh, if he I might as well have left a KGB calling card he, on he their box. He might as well have left a, a, a signed card saying, I did this, signed Vladimir Putin. And not the first time either that he'd poisoned people in the United Kingdom. But the point about Skripal that I think is is so fascinating is that Skripal had been in, who, who was, by the way, from Kaliningrad, like Putin's wife, uh, from the exclave of the old East Prussia. History, people who think history doesn't matter, um, it's worth uh, bearing these points in mind. Skripal had been in the United Kingdom since 2010. Yeah. The, the KGB never forgets, and Putin is an absolute product of the KGB, and he never wanted this guy to uh, be allowed to um, get away with things. Well, I'm sure uh, both of you gentlemen will remember this, but my first assignment as a young CIA analyst more years ago than I care to count, although Mike's been around longer than I have, so I feel good about that, was looking at the evidence that the Bulgarian intelligence services under the command of the KGB in the early 1980s had tried to murder a pope. And part of that evidence was looking back at an assassination that the Soviet the KGB conducted against a Bulgarian dissident called Georgi Markov on a bridge in London. So oh, yes, it's this the goes way back with yeah. the umbrella. Yeah, yeah. It's, it's literally the same. I don't know if life imitates art or art imitates life, but it's it's from a James Bond movie. They 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 so, whack the guy with an umbrella on a bridge. It sounds like poison, a, sounds like an was, episode of Clue. It was on Waterloo Bridge. It was a poison chip umbrella, mm-hmm. and for some time. Because uh, he managed to get a, a garbled explanation before he died out to people, and so some passers-by did as well. And for some, but, but nevertheless, it sounds so outlandish that people yeah. didn't believe it. And then, when after the collapse of the East uh, after the Cold War ended, they went down into the Bulgarian embassy in one. I don't even think it was the UK in another country. They found yeah. a whole bunch of poison tip umbrellas. Well, and I have to say, I, you know, I was a young very, very young analyst. And uh, Bill Casey was the CIA director at the time. And Ronald Reagan was the president. And we were under intense pressure to say that the Bulgarian agent, much like on the bridge in London, actually had taken a swipe at the Pope. And Mike knows that one of the great ethical principles of being a CIA analyst is you don't bow to political pressure. And so we were almost predisposed to argue with the political leadership. And this plays out many, many times in the decades since in the first Iraq war, the second Iraq war, what it turns out historically, they did it. Gosh, is that right? Yeah. Well, just like in the UK where they also, you remember they killed Alexander Litvinenko, who's another Russian spy, yeah, yes. with polonium-210, yeah, right. which you need, you need a state laboratory to produce it. I mean, it was... Don't, it don't, they, Alex, don't they unofficially call it putonium-210? Uh, not sure. I hadn't heard that, but it fits. Okay, so Alex, I, I want to I close on Ukraine because yeah. we, we're going to be in a crisis soon and I want to get this out to our listeners. But you, among all the hats you wear, you you run a a division of a global consultancy whose mission in part is to take open source information and advise companies and governments and organizations on the future. So let's say for the sake of argument, and we hope this is not true, that Putin does go in in the next couple of weeks 
and in Mike's scenario, carves off increasing portions of the country, but you have an actual armed conflict in part of Ukraine. What, what does this do to the world economy? What does it do to the oil market? What does it do to the humanitarian right. situation? Right. So there's at least three immediate outcomes beyond the fact that, I mean, I've spent a bit of time in Ukraine. I've had Ukrainian clients, um, which means I've, I had to go to Kiev to, to service them and, and mm -hmm. spend time with them. The Ukrainians are going to fight, right? There's not going to be a rollover. There, there will be a fight in trench warfare in eastern Ukraine in a very cold environment that will bog down and um, it will not be easy. And it will have, uh, which I'm, I'm drawing a distinction between what happened in Crimea, uh, where people might say was manageable or bearable on the economic, global economic stage, and what would happen in East Ukraine, which has already been, you know, the former breadbasket of Europe has already been kneecapped by, um, mm -hmm. by events. But the first thing would be a spike in global energy prices, very significant, uh, I think. The second would be um, uh, the, the West having threatened sanctions on Russia for so long would if, if things like this happen, would simply have to follow through. And uh, businesses that, and that's not just Russian interests, you know, it's not just Russian uh, businesses, Western countries that do work in, in Russia would suddenly find a great deal of their operations hampered. So Alex, and there would be a run on sorry, there. sorry to yeah. interrupt, Alex, specific question. Does the Nord Stream 2 pipeline close? Uh, yeah, well, your president's already said that. Biden has said that he, he would. Um, right, but we don't to, run Germany. No, but, you know, it's an, I think, um, I, I do not think that the Germans could in all good conscience continue with Nord Stream 2 um, right. if that were to happen. So energy prices would spike. Western businesses doing any kind of work with Russia would have great um, challenges to their fundamentals and their business models. And, and as a result, I think you'd see a global economic crisis. My, my guess, Sober, sobering. Brian, Brian and Go Alex, ahead, on that as well, too, is that I, I, I have a hunch that Biden already has a, a, a protocol with the Germans on this that, you know, that they've, yeah. they've reached an agreement. It just hasn't been been publicized uh, fully. That's my guess. This is driving me back to the vodka, guys. I don't know about you. <laughs> uh, me too. Me too, my friend. Well, Mike Hurley, um, you know, I'll give you my sort of idiosyncratic view. And I think <laughs> we've, we've all known each other for a long time. I, I view myself as a militant centrist. I don't view myself as a partisan. I do feel strongly that um, starting for sure with President Obama and possibly with George W. Bush, although I think that's more debatable, um, every American president has given Putin lots of reason to believe that he could get away with whatever he wanted. And similarly, President Xi in China. And I just wonder, Mike, you can debate that if you want, or more, more perhaps forward-looking, if and then slices off a significant portion of Ukraine with tens of thousands of casualties. And we wind up with economic sanctions such as the pipeline closing, maybe Sweden and Finland become close to being NATO members. Maybe we more Soviets that are NATO members. How do you see this playing out in, in telling Putin and President Xi in China and the Iranians and other potential empire building despots that they can't get away with it? Or are we just in a whole new era where countries can get carved up? Yeah, so I, so, so I don't, so I don't, I don't disagree with you, Brian. I, I think that Putin clearly sees the U.S. Um, as, as weak. We've been, we've been, you know, blasted by COVID like uh, much of the world. Um, our 
politics are polarized, all those different things. He he definitely sees us as weak. But it's also given that that you know when dealing with a despot, as you say, that they have certain advantages over a yeah. government system where there's checks and balances, where a, a, a president can't just take us willy nilly into um, in, into in, into war in the way that that he can. So. Um, is it weakness or is it, um, you know, a, a kind of result of the, the, the system that we have? I don't know. But um, so I, I don't disagree with you that he sees us as weak and that we probably made a number of mistakes. Uh, but if it, does if, it, if it does go the way that you describe, uh, we may be in it for the long haul then because you can't just put on these sort of, you know, suffocating um, kind of, you know, economic sanctions on a country and uh we keep hearing that these will be like nothing that russia has experienced before um and you can imagine some of that uh that would be very stifling for sure but we'll have to be in it for the long haul you can't you just apply those right. for a couple of months right um because then you really will be weak if 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 the um if the solidarity on that uh that phrase so um it will have to be continuing diplomacy to keep the alliance strong and keep the pressure on. But um, on the other hand, I think we want to avoid a world in which um, autocrats can just roll over these borders because it definitely will but give the, some it, kind of a green light to, uh, to Xi Jinping exactly. and Taiwan. As, as, exactly. as Alex likes me to say, 108% to that. Ah, um, well, nothing more than 100%. <laughs> Alex, do you see daylight between the United States and our European allies, you know, understanding no, each country is different. I, well, hang on. Yes, I, I, I do not see daylight between the British and American position. I see I daylight between Group One, Britain and America, and Group Two, Germany, and to a less, slightly lesser extent, France. Um, when President Macron went over and and met with Putin on a, a agenda of stated items, many of which NATO had already explicitly neglected, uh, rejected, there I saw real daylight between the French position, or at least Macron's position, and ours. But I also wanted to pick up on what Mike was saying about that Putin thinks that we're weak. You remember there's that scene in the West Wing Josh says to the president, if if the House overrides our veto, uh, then we're going to look weak. And the president says, if the House overrides our veto, we are weak. Yes. <laughs> this, is, yes. this is not about perception anymore. Yeah. If we let Putin get away with it, it's not that he thinks we're weak. Yeah. We are. Yes, that's, that's a, a great point. point. And I always welcome a West Wing reference, as you know. Do you think, Alex, that to Mike's point about the need to be in on the sanctions for the long haul, do you yeah. think that the French, the Germans, the other European Union countries will stick with us? And what, what will change them from doing that? How long do you think they'll stick with us? History suggests that over time, any coalition of people gets peeled away from on things like sanctions and not trading with people because they see a profit in it. And I'm not mm -hmm. casting aspersions on any one country. It's just the nature of, of things. France. And of course, we found out, well, we found ourselves in <laughs> the Falklands facing some kit that the French had sold to the Argentines, knowing where it was likely to be used. Mm -hmm. um, so, yeah, those things do happen. 
But I would say in this example, Britain has today, as we record, announced that we are going to end our so-called golden visa program for everybody. But really, it's happening because it's been extended to many Russians who've arrived in and, and enjoyed um, their time in London as a result of their money. And of course, the irony being, generally speaking, it's not their money, it's money they've expropriated from other people. But I, I would also say that it's very easy to do that eye-catching piece. The much harder thing to do is the the billions of pounds that's gone through the city of London in yes. terms of trades and investments. That's the harder yards, and that would really bite. You know, the city of London is you know, is a small area of financial activity, but it's more than fifteen percent of my country's entire economy. And that will have to be the last word for us today, listeners. Thank you so much to Mike Hurley for joining us to share your experience and insights. Next week will be a special President's Day episode where we'll talk about Abraham Lincoln's duel. Bet you didn't even know there was one. And we'll tell some stories about LBJ, always colorful. And listeners, the bourbon will be flowing next week, so you're not going to want to miss that one. Meanwhile, as you hear this, we hope tanks are not rolling across the Ukraine border and missiles are not raining down on Kiev. But either way, we hope this episode helps you understand a little bit more about what's going on. See you next time. Cheers. Thank you for listening to the Hidden History Happy Hour podcast. Don't forget to subscribe on your favorite podcast app. And if you have questions, comments, or suggestions for topics, you can find us on Twitter or on our website, hiddenhistoryhappyhour.com. We look forward to joining you next time. We thank our gifted producers, Jeremy Corr and Kate Cruz, and our visionary executive producer, Ivan Williams, without whom this podcast would be, well, history. And thanks also to our art designer, David Wardle. Cheers. Thank <laughs> you.